Now, of course, we've already seen that Abraham has gone through many testings, hasn't he? And he's proved his love and obedience for God in many ways, though he was disobedient on other occasions. But first of all, he left the place that God told him to leave, Ur of the Chaldees, his home. He went to Haran, stayed there for about 15 years, and finally went into the land of Canaan. He passed his first test. Second test was when he had to separate from Lot, his nephew, but he did it. He had to separate then from Ishmael, his son, but the final and greatest test was chapter 22 when he had to take his only son and place him on the altar of Mount Moriah and almost sacrifice him, almost kill him. just want to backtrack a little bit from last week. It always fascinates me, the story of chapter 22 of Genesis, because it is a type of something that happened a few thousand years later on the same mountain. And I mentioned it briefly last week. If you were to go to Israel today and look from the Mount of Olives westward, and you'd see the Temple Mount of Jerusalem. Today it is flat where the temple once stood. And it's flat because Herod the Great leveled it and made this huge temple platform. But if you were living during the time of Abraham and you looked westward toward the Temple Mount, you wouldn't see a flat area. You'd see a rising area from the Kidron Valley and it would continually, gradually rise off to, let's do it backwards, off to your right. And over on the far right-hand side, you would see the peak of Mount Moriah. A little bit to the right of the Temple Mount during the time of Solomon and David and even Jesus. When God told Abraham to take his son, his only son whom he loved, to Mount Moriah, he probably took him to the very peak of the mountain where it slopes on both sides. It's a vantage point. It was typical for sacrifices to take place like that. He took him up there and he made a prophecy. When Isaac said, okay, we've got the wood, but where's the sacrifice? Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself the lamb. Now, as we read the story, God didn't provide a lamb. He provided a ram. Abraham said God would provide a lamb. And he was about to take and sacrifice his son. He was restrained by the angel. He saw a ram caught in a thicket, sacrificed it. They called the name of the place Yahweh Yireh in Hebrew. The Lord will provide, saying, In the mountain of the Lord it shall be, future tense, shall be seen. The Lord will provide, in the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen. The Lord will provide himself a lamb. A few thousand years later, Jesus Christ came on the scene. The first public appearance that he ever made, John the Baptist recognized him and said, There he is, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Three and a half years later, from that point, Jesus was taken to the top of Calvary, which is the very peak of Mount Moriah, and was slain for the sins of the world. Now the prophecy of Abraham makes sense. 
The Lord will provide himself the lamb. In the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen. The whole stage was set. The first time the word love appears in the Bible, it appears in Genesis 22. And it is significant to notice the usage of the word love. It's not a love of a husband for a wife or a son for a dad, but the love of a father for his son while he's offering him as a sacrifice. And the language is picturesque. Take now your son, your only son. Even though he had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, God said, take your only son whom you love and sacrifice him. God knew what he was doing. This is all prophetic of the Lamb of God who would come to Golgotha, to Calvary, and pay for the sins of the world. In verse 5, which we mentioned last time, Abraham said to his son, or to the, his young men who traveled with him, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder. Sounds like he's from Kentucky or something. We're going to go yonder and worship. And we will come back to you. Again, here's a man of faith. He's taking his son to sacrifice him, and yet in faith he says, Don't worry, we'll be back. We'll be back. Wait a minute, God said take your son and slaughter him. But he says, We'll come back to you. Now what happened? Well, during that time, as he was traveling up to the peak of Mount Moriah, he was probably reasoning in his mind the things that had happened in his life. He reasoned against the unreasonable. He thought, all right, Isaac was born when my wife was 90 years old. That's miraculous. Um, he's the son of promise. It happened. God said that through Isaac, he would bless the rest of the world. Therefore... God has to have a plan to preserve his life. Now, what was his reasoning exactly? Keep a finger here and turn right. Keep going till you get to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11. Verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Accounting that God was able to raise him even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Now, that was his thinking. It says he was accounting. That's a mathematical term. He was calculating it all out. Very logical thought. He thought, oh, probably things like God promised that he would be the seed of promise, that the nations would be blessed through him. It only makes sense, then, that if God wants me to kill him, that God will raise him from the dead. Now, this was a test of love. And let it be said that love is tested by sacrifice. Love is not tested by kind words or flowers, but it's tested by what you're willing to give up. I often now at weddings, as I look at the couple exchanging their vows, and we had a great wedding yesterday. It was just so touching as the couple, right in the middle of their vows, you know, he started off very confidently, and uh, it was so tender. As he said, I take you 
as my lawfully wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward for better for worse and then he started crying right there he couldn't even finish the vows he had to whisper them it was touching and she was you know as soon as he started crying you know she just lost it <laughs> and her makeup was running and it was just it was great <laughs> but you could see the love in between their eyes, exchanging them. It was like a dynamic was happening. But I always wonder at a wedding how far ahead couples think. I know I didn't think far ahead. I mean, this is my wedding. I'm stoked. I heard only the words better, richer, health. I didn't hear sickness, poorer, and worse. But most relationships, as they go onward, can become complex, and there are sacrifices. Love must be tested. How much are you willing to give up and sacrifice for that relationship? Abraham, how much do you love me? Oh, God, I love you. Now, we all say that, right? Oh, God, I love you. I'll do anything for you. Really? Take your only son. Would you sacrifice him for me? I'm sure that that was so contradictory to Abraham. Why would God ask me to kill him? What does God want? Why does he want blood? That's cruel. It's inconsistent with his character. But he thought, why should I argue with him? Look what he's done for me so far. All right? You're God. You brought me into this world. You brought him miraculously into this world. And I've learned not to argue with you. I'll do it. God must raise him from the dead. Now, Isaac was dead in the mind of Abraham for three days. It wasn't until the third day that there was the resurrection when the angel stopped him and said, nope. He's not the one. Here's a ram. Again, very typical of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven, and he said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Now, there's a secret I want you to notice before we finish out this chapter. The secret that gave him his strength in the midst of the trial. Verse 5 again. He said, stay here with the donkey, the lad, and I will go yonder and what? Worship. He converted his trial into an act of worship. He glanced at his trial. He gazed at the Lord. Now, anytime you can take your heartache, your problem, and turn it into an act of worship before the Lord, you will be sustained. Otherwise, you will be completely overwhelmed. Isn't it amazing how little things can rob God of His glory in our own eyes? Little things that turn on us in life, little problems, we can magnify them, they become so big that they block out God's ability to solve them. The example I like to use is the sun. The sun is huge. It's so huge, it's so powerful, that though it's 93 million miles away from this planet, it can give us temperatures of over 100 degrees in the summer. You can thank God that you're not too close to it. Yet the sun, as large as it is, can be overwhelmed in its power by something this small. 
Now, if I take this object and I were to push it out into outer space 93 million miles away, how big would this object be in comparison to the sun? Couldn't see it. Now, if I take that perspective out of alignment and I keep the sun where it's at, but I move this object right here, I all of a sudden lose my view of the sun. Even though the sun is much bigger and more brilliant than this object, it depends on my perspective and my relationship to this object. Picture this object as your problem. If you take your problem and bring it close and gaze at your problem, it can overwhelm the power, the majesty, and the strength of God. Take your problem, however, and push it out next to God's size. And all of a sudden, your problem goes... Sarah had to learn that. God said, Sarah, or Abraham, Sarah's going to have a baby. She laughed. I'm an old woman. No way. God said, why did you laugh? She said, oh, I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. Is anything too hard for the Lord? What God did when he said that is took her problem and pushed it out in comparison to how big God is. Okay, that's a difficulty, but difficulty must be measured by the one doing it. I didn't say you naturally would have a child. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Abraham said, the lad and I will go yonder and we will worship. He converted his heartache into a time of worship. And he was sustained through it, accounting that God could do anything. All right. In verse 16, the angel of the Lord said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son, in blessing I will bless you. And in multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, how was that ever fulfilled? It was fulfilled by the Messiah coming through the lineage of Abraham, being able to bless all nations. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, just like he said, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Now it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor. <laughs> now, get these names. Huz, the firstborn. Buzz, his brother. You know, it'd be, it, be a drag to have that name. I'm Uz, this is my brother Buzz. <laughs> you know they got ridicule. <laughs> At least in our culture they would. Kemuel, the brother of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pirash, uh, Jidloff, and Bethuel. I know a lot of people are looking for biblical names to name their kids. You've got a list. <laughs> Verse 23, we should make a note of. Bethuel begot Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Bethuel, that is the fifth son of Nahor becomes important to us because he has two kids. Rebekah, who becomes the wife of Isaac, and Laban is one of his kids. Laban has two daughters. What are their names? Rachel and Leah. 
And they become, both of them, the wives of Jacob later on. So it'll become interesting and important to us as we go on. His concubine, whose name was Ruma, uh, bore Teba, Gaham, and I'm not going to even pronounce the last two names. Chapter 23 is an obituary. The entire chapter is devoted to the funeral arrangements that Abraham makes for his wife, Sarah, who dies. And so we read, Sarah lived 127 years, and she was ready to meet the Lord. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Her death was no doubt expected, being that old, 127 years old. It wasn't like it took Abraham off guard. I can't believe it. I mean, 127, honey, it's time. And I think by that time you're saying, Lord, just come on, take me. However, Abraham still grieved for his wife. And this is a very important concept. Verse 2. So Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, which means in Hebrew, the village of the four, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Think about it from Abraham's point of view. They had covered a lot of ground together. They'd watched God work in their lives. They'd seen divine interventions, miraculous occurrences. My wife and I were talking about this last week. The closer a couple grows in their relationship to each other over a period of years in a marriage, the closer they get, the more difficult the parting is. It doesn't matter if they're old. In fact, all the more acute becomes the parting because they've shared intimately everything. And the closer they become, death is such this incredible, deep, dark separation. And it is always wrong to just pat people on the back and say, Hey, don't worry, brother, they're with the Lord. Yeah, that's great, but I am without them. I miss them right now. And there was just this big empty space in Abraham's life. He'd been through so much with her. And what a testimony to be married all those years through thick and thin. You know, when Abraham stood at the altar and said, Till death do us part. I don't know what vows they had back then, but he meant it. He didn't say until feelings do us part, until debt do us part, until you grow ugly and I grow ugly and we go in different directions. But he said until death do us part and he meant it. He never parted with that wife until she was dead. And now he rises up and he's mourning for her. Since the entire chapter is devoted to death, I wanted to just mention a few things on it. First of all, we don't like to talk about it. Most Americans don't like to talk about it. That's evidenced by the fact that 50% of Americans do not have a will. Because they think, oh, that's for other people. They die. <laughs> you know that two people die every second? And the statistics of death are incredible. One out of every one person dies. Which means, unless the Lord comes back awfully quick for us, every one of us in this room is going to kick the proverbial bucket. And so we better make plans for that. We shouldn't have it a taboo subject. We should talk to our children about that very freely and openly and make sure plans are made. It shouldn't be something that is not discussed. Fortunately, on many college campuses, the subject of thanatology is becoming a more open subject. The whole idea of death and coping with disaster. 
But typically, people don't like to talk about it. Um, and I think our culture, more than any other culture, tries to prevent it. With surgeries and uh, keeping our bodies in shape. I'm not knocking that. I do it, and I think we should. I enjoy life. I have no death wish. I don't want to just let my body go to pot and just say, well, you know, be with the Lord. No, I, I really dig life here. Paul said, I'm in a straight between two when he was suffering. I have a desire to be with Christ, yet nevertheless, to be with you, I see the necessity. Now, I'm ready to meet the Lord. When my time's up, I want to graduate. But until then, I'm really having a blast. I'm enjoying my life before the Lord. But I think we ought to be ready, and Sarah, of course, was ready. Um, I watched a special while I was out in California speaking a couple weeks ago. It was on some late-night Discovery Channel, I think, and it was a, a show on eternal life. And it interviewed a couple doctors who are involved in cryonics, freezing heads uh, and bodies, and, and because they're just convinced that you know, they're going to live forever. They're going to come up with the technology and be able to unthaw the brain and you know, attach it to some superhuman body in the future. And uh, It was heartbreaking to see these husbands or wives who had lost their spouses freezing their heads and uh, in hopes that you know, one day they'll get together and we hope that it works out when they thaw us out. And Oh, man. Then they interviewed another couple of people who believed sincerely that they were immortal, that they had eternal life, that they would never die. They found the fountain of youth and they said, I'm convinced I'll never die, I'll live forever. And I looked at them, they didn't look in that good a shape, but uh, they were convinced that they would live forever. Then I saw another special where they're making caskets with stereos in them. No joke. Of course it was invented in California. And they're nice systems. They're CD players and auto-reverse tape players so that the deceased can hear their favorite music uh, down under. And uh, not only that, but they had, in some cases, for a, a high price, a video system with a camera on the outside of the grave piped into a monitor inside the casket. So that that person, believe it or not, the spirit of the person or whatever lingering behind who they believe was still there would be able to see their loved ones when they visit the grave. No joke. No joke. Sarah died. And Abraham mourned. She was getting old. She was ready to go. So Sarah died, and it says that Abraham came to weep for her. There's a time to laugh, and there's a time to mourn. And certainly death is a time to mourn. And I just want to reiterate, when a Christian dies, we mourn. We mourn not for the person who's left. When I see a Christian die, I think, well, I know where he's at, and he's having a great time. I, he's not mourning. He's not crying. He's going, this is awesome, Lord. I didn't know it would be this great. But I do mourn, and I'm sensitive to the person who's experienced the loss. 
The Bible says we sorrow, yet we sorrow not as those who have no hope. Nonetheless, we sorrow. And it's wrong again to give somebody a pat answer and give them a little pat on the back and say, hey, don't worry about it, they're with the Lord. Yeah, they already know that. But we need to be sensitive and let that person mourn. In fact, when a person loses somebody to death, there's all sorts of emotions that occur. Don't be surprised. Some of the greatest studies done on death have been done in the last 25 years. Probably the progenitor of these studies is Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She's come up with all sorts of kooky ideas, but she did study the whole idea of death and catastrophe. And she said that the first emotion a person experiences when that person has lost a loved one is shock and denial. I remember when my father called me on the phone and said, your brother Bob has just died. I said, no, I don't believe it. It can't have happened. It didn't happen. No, God, no. Mixed with that, she said, comes bargaining. Oh, God, please, if you just, God, don't let this happen, please bring him back. I promise that's a typical human emotion. Usually that is mixed with anger. Anger at God, anger at other people, even anger at the deceased person. Why'd you leave me? Then comes depression, deep depression. Eventually, as those depression are intermingled after a period of time, comes hope and acceptance. But it takes time. And don't be surprised when that person exhibits all those emotions. Don't say, that's not Christian. No, it's normal. That person still might have hope for the person who's deceased, but there's that gaping loss. And you know one of the things that I really respect about Jesus is he let people experience those emotions. Remember when Lazarus was killed? Lazarus died. Jesus shows up late for the funeral. He'd been dead a few days. Mary and Martha come up and said, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus didn't say, stop talking like that to me. I'm the Messiah. <laughs> he let her vent those emotions. He knew that was typical response. That anger at God, that anger at Jesus. You could have done something. Why? He just said, Martha, your brother will live again. I know he'll live again in the resurrection at the last day. I am the resurrection and the life. And just filled her with the promises to comfort her heart. Verse 3, Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a sojourner among you. Give me property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now, it was important that Abraham move quickly, because the body deteriorates rapidly. You can't leave a dead body alone. You have to treat it, and you have to bury it, and Jews would bury their dead very quickly because of the deterioration. They would find a cave, they would wrap the body, they would use spices to preserve that body for a period of time, and they would encase the body and then put it in the grave. Remember again when Jesus comes to Lazarus' grave, and he says, uh, roll the stone away. And the women protest, hey, wait, 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 Lord. He's been dead for four days, by now he stinketh. That's the King James. <laughs> you know, there's some parts of the King James you just can't beat. That's one of them. Nothing says it quite like that. Lord, behold, he stinketh. The rotting has taken place. And so Abraham, after his wife had died, said, Okay, it's time for me to bury her out of my sight. I'm going through this grief, but now is the time to bury her. So he's asking now for a place. 
Verse 3, one commentator suggests that it is indicative of Abraham rising up, squaring his shoulders, firming his step, an indication that he says, all right, she's died, I'm mourning, but life has to go on. And that's also an important step in mourning. Mourning is important. Grieving is important. All those emotions need to be vented. But there comes a time when prolonged mourning is unhealthy. And some people who don't cope with death immediately end up coping with it through the years. They become recluse. They lock themselves up. They burn candles to the picture of that person. They dress in black because they never really dealt with it in a healthy manner at first. There's time to mourn, get it out. And by the way, the Hebrews mourned for 30 days when somebody died. Man, and it was an outburst of emotions. They would beat the breast, tear the clothes, throw dirt in their hair. They, I mean, they got, it, they got it out. The Egyptians mourned for 70 days. So man, at the end of 70 days, they were ready to go on. They've done enough. And that's an important step. It's important to grieve, but it's time to encourage the person, hey, let's go on. Again, when my brother died and I drove up to the house to see my parents for the first time, I opened the door and my mother answered the door. When I looked at her face, my countenance dropped because I had seen her a couple weeks before, but when I looked at her after my brother Bob's death, she had aged, it looked like to me, 10 years because of the grief. And so we were grieving together for the next couple weeks. We were talking about him, reminiscing about his life, at times just breaking down and not saying a word. And I'll never forget my brother Rick, one of my older brothers, got the family together and just gave us a pep talk. He said, okay, guys, let me give it to you straight. We've mourned and we've buried him. We miss him, but we've got to live. We can't change what has happened. Now it's time for us to get up and go on. And we're going to have to put this aside now. And it was good for us to hear that. When Moses died, later on we read in Joshua chapter 1, God says to the children of Israel, Moses, my servant, is dead. You've mourned for him. Now arise and go over Jordan. You've mourned, that's good. Now get up and move. Life must go on. So Abraham squares his shoulders, finds a place now to bury his wife, uh, and they go on. Verse 5, And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. He had a good reputation before them. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. Now, I just want to say before we move on, when it is your time, whatever time that is for you to pass from this life and go into the next, it will be a coronation. It will be a graduation. I often think when I do a funeral for a believer, what must have been his first response and reaction when he took his last breath here and his first breath on the other side with the Lord Jesus Christ? He wasn't weeping, I'll tell you that. And I often think it must have been, whoa! And just an incredible elation. In the upper room, when the disciples were moping around because Jesus spoke of his death, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. 
You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go, I will come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Encourage one another with these words. And Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And I like to think of it this way. It took God six days to create the heavens and the earth. And they look pretty good, don't they? You go on a vacation, you see places like Hawaii, the Caribbean, or uh, Yosemite National Park, even the forests around here. And you go, wow, this is gorgeous. And God just spoke it into existence. Six days. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, if he's been preparing this place for 2,000 years, if earth looks this good, even after the fall, imagine what your place looks like. It's not going to be a shack. It's going to be awesome. That's why when death comes, man, don't, don't mourn for me. Now, you, if you want to mourn my loss, that's fine. But whatever you do, if I'm, you know, if I'm near death or something, don't, really don't pray that I'll come back. Imagine how hard it was for Paul, being caught up into the third heaven, seeing inexpressible things, having to wake up and go, oh, back. <laughs> you know, I never got into the whole philosophy of reincarnation. And the New Agers push it like it's some great thing. What a drag to keep coming back and back and back to this. And I want a graduation, man. I want a crown. Abraham stood up, verse 7, bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me. Now, this is an interesting conversation that we see develop. It's a typical Middle Eastern argument, kind of a bartering, bargaining over an item. That he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. Now, Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered the gate of the city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, Please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephraim answered, Abraham saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. Now that was an exorbitant price, an outrageous price. It would be like saying, tell you what, I'll sell you this little acre of land on the Rio Grande for, what, 20 million? I mean, just some exorbitant price because he did not want Abraham to buy the land. Now, as you read this, you would think, you know, he's just trying to be nice and give it. The customs of the Hittites were that no land should be sold a foreigner. They didn't want them to own the property. So he started out by saying, please take my land, knowing that Abraham was going to come back and say, no, I want to buy it. It was just a formal kind of treaty. He jacked the price up to 400 shekels, thinking, this guy's not going to bite at that. I want to put it so high that no one can buy it because I don't want this foreigner, the sojourner, to own this property. Now, Abraham was a wealthy man having 318 armed servants. God blessed him mightily. He was a very, very wealthy entrepreneur. 
And uh, Abraham, you're going to see what happens. So he says, so bury your dead Abraham. Listen to Ephron. Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron. Their mouth's probably hanging wide open. Which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So the field of, field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which means twin caves or two caves, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field which were within all the surrounding borders were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. Now, if you go to Israel today, it's fascinating to watch Hebrew people talk to each other. In fact, the first time I went there, I thought they were about ready to hit each other when they would talk. They kind of talk, and then they raise their voice, and then they start shouting at each other, and they're moving their hands. I think, there's going to be a fight, until I saw everybody doing that. And it's just a typical way of communication. They're not like we are. They're very emotional in their dealings. And they shop that way. They don't have a little sticker price. That's, that's the price. And there's a sale today. You know, they'll come in and they'll say, I want this much for it. And you always lowball them, because they just highballed you. And you say, oh, that thing's not worth 25 shekels. I'll give you five shekels. Five shekels! I can't believe you give me five shekels. This thing's worth at least 40 shekels. I'm giving you a special. Oh, it's not a special deal. Look, I'll give you seven. Oh, hey, tell you what. Fifteen, they'll say. You say, it's not worth fifteen. I said, seven. Seven. You're insulting me. But then they'll say, since you're my first customer of the day, and it's our custom to give it, and it's this, you've got to do it. Every now and then a gullible American will walk in. Like, 25 shekels, all right, 25 shekels, all right. She said it's a special deal. It's just the negotiations. Also, if you go to Israel today, you can see where Abraham is buried. It's one of the few authentic places in the entire land of Israel. Hebron is about, I'm going to guess, three, four, five miles from Bethlehem. Bethlehem is about five miles from Jerusalem. So if you're in Jerusalem, you go down south a little bit, you'll run smack dab into Hebron. In Hebron is this huge structure built by Herod the Great 2,000 years ago. Still intact. It was never destroyed. And he built it around the cave of Machpelah. The cave of Machpelah is underneath. Presently, the Muslims have built a mosque over it to commemorate the patriarchs. And they'll show you how that underneath the ground in the cave, you can look through a little peephole and you can see the entrance to the cave where Abraham is buried, Sarah is buried, uh, Jacob, uh, Isaac is buried there, Rebekah is buried there, um, Jacob and Leah. Rachel is not buried there. She's buried near Bethlehem and you can see her tomb on the road as you go out, take a right and go back up to Bethlehem. So if you go to Israel with us, we'll try to point that out. I can't promise you that we'll get into Hebron, however, because uh, it's the place where they throw a lot of rocks on the West Bank. And even last time when we were in Bethlehem, I don't know if it was this last time or the time before, they broke a window on our bus. Was it last time? It must have been the year before, but uh, a group went down into the church in Bethlehem, and I stayed um, 
in the bus, because I don't like going into the churches in Israel. You've seen one church, you've seen them all. And uh, we were being chased by kids down the street, and they threw this big old rock in the back of our bus and smashed our window. It was kind of exciting. Let's look at chapter 24. Now, Abraham was old. And when the Bible says he's old, he's old. He was 140 at this time. He was ready too. Well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Now, if he was 140, his son Isaac at this time was 40 years old. Time to get married. And so Abraham said to the oldest servant of the house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife from my sons, from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you will go to my country, to my kindred, and take a wife from my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which he came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. Let's pause for just a moment and review, because chapter 24 is a major break in the second division of the book of Genesis. The first part of the book of Genesis gives us four great events. The second gives us four great people. Chapters 1 through 11 is the first part. Chapters 12 through the rest of the book is the second part. The four great events that we saw in chapters 1 through 11 are what, first of all? Creation, the fall of man uh, due to their sin, number three, the flood, and number four, the Tower of Babel. Now we get to the four great figures, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And uh, we have a break here in this chapter where uh, Isaac has grown up and now it's time for him to get married. And from this point on, we're going to be following Isaac. Abraham will fade out into the background and we'll focus in on the second great person of the book of Genesis, the man called Isaac. Three great events in his life. Number one, his birth, which was miraculous. Number two, his marriage, which I think was no less miraculous. And number three, his death. Those three great events. Chapter 24 is a love story. It's a greatly loved chapter. It shows how God is interested in your love story. God had a wife picked out for old Isaac. And God brought them together through unusual circumstances. I'm often asked, does, does God have the perfect mate for me? Single people will often ask, does God have the perfect mate picked for me? I say, let me rephrase that. God has the most suitable mate chosen for you. Because when a person says, where's the perfect woman or where's the perfect man? They often have a list of unrealistic expectations. Of course, he wants her to be the most gorgeous thing on earth. And he's supposed to be able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Be the Incredible Hulk, incredibly smart. And she's, to, you know, to be the best cook. And just a friend of mine, I've told you this before, had a whole list of qualifications. He told me about this woman that he was uh, looking for. And I said to him, if she's that perfect, will she be attracted to you? <laughs> now, it wasn't a cut. I just wanted him to think. 
that instead of looking for the right person, perhaps he should start being the right person for somebody that awesome. And he had to work on his own character traits. I mean, if she's going to be that awesome, you want her to be attracted to you. And so that should always be really the focus, is that you become the right person rather than looking for this perfect person. But what's beautiful is God is interested in your love story. The steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. And God has the most suitable one chosen for you. Even as Adam was out there and God said, It's not good the man shall be alone. I will bring him someone who is suitable for him, comparable to him, bring him to complete fulfillment. And of course, her name was Eve. Beautiful love story. Um, in verse 2, Abraham said to the oldest servant of the house, who do you suppose that was? His name has already been given. Eleazar. Now, his name is significant. It means helper. Just tuck that in the back of your mind as we go through this story. Helper. In those days, when they wanted to swear an oath, they didn't do it like today. They didn't say, put your left hand on the Bible, raise your right hand and say, you know, and make this little oath like they do today in a modern courtroom. You swear by the Bible. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. I wish they wouldn't do that. I don't think it's necessary to put your hand on a Bible. If a person's going to lie, he's going to lie regardless of what he puts his hand on. Perjury happens all the time. I think it's a mockery, really. In those days, they didn't swear by a Bible or by putting their hand up. They put their hand on the thigh of a person. Because it spoke of the loins from which the children come. It was an intimate form of, okay, you're swearing by all that is important in my life, my son, Isaac, who has come from my own loins, that you're going to get him a wife, not from the Canaanites, not from this godless society, but the one that God has chosen in this other culture, to go back to where Abraham actually came from. Abraham was forbidding the servant to select a wife from among the Canaanites. Why? Why? The Canaanites were ungodly, filled with idolatry. Most of the world was at that time. But he understood, Abraham understood, the principle of an unequal yoke. The Bible says, be not unequally yoked together with who? An unbeliever. And he knew the problems that that could create in the future. Now, in the ancient times, dad picked out his son's wife. That's a frightening prospect, isn't it? Son, I've been around longer than you. You're only 40 years old. I'm 140. I've seen my fill of women, and I know the right kind, and I'm going to pick out a wife for you. And I'm going to send my servant out. You know, that's how they did it. And a father would get a negotiator called the friend of the bridegroom. Once dad selected a bride, this is typical Jewish background. Once dad selected a bride, the friend of the bridegroom would negotiate the price. You say, the price? Yes, there was a price. The dad of the son had to bring a dowry, which was sort of like alimony in advance. <laughs> it was a guarantee. I'm giving you this money for your daughter. Why? Because to take a daughter away from a family is to diminish the efficiency of the family. Daughters worked hard out in the fields, watering the animals. And to take a, a girl, you had to pay for it. 
the dad wanted to select the daughter for the son because he's bringing her into the family. She's going to become a part of our family now. We want to make sure she's a good hard worker. She's now part of the work crew. Seriously. And so dad would make sure that she is able. (laughs) Now, I can tell by some of your reaction to that 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 doesn't sound appealing. We like to date and make our own choices. However, in those days, in ancient society, you got to give it to them because they believed that stable marriages were built on much more than physical beauty or romantic emotionalism. They were built on commitment. That's why, once the bride was selected, the bride and the groom entered into something called a betrothal, an espousal period, which is much deeper than our engagement. Once they are engaged, betrothed for one year, they can have no sexual relationship, they can court and they can date and they can get to know one another, but they cannot separate except by a legal divorce. They learned commitment. They learned to love each other. There was a commitment there. It was till death do us part. And though we might scoff at the dating procedures, A young man and a young woman looked at each other knowing, we're going to be partners forever. And I'm going to learn to know you so that I might compliment you. That commitment was something that was very, very deep. Verse 6, it says, Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. So Eliezer says, now wait a minute. Uh, What if this whole thing doesn't work out? Should I just take him with me and, you know, he can come back and see this one? No, don't you dare take him back. Why? Because God gave them the land that they were in, the land of Canaan. God brought them all the way from Ur of the Chaldees, plopped them in the land, said, this is the land that you and your son Isaac, and son, son, and so forth, will occupy. I don't want to take him away from God's promised land. He might get attached to another land. So you keep him here. And it would be like slapping God's promises, you know, just saying, forget it. But he said, no, you keep my son here. You go back and get a, a wife. I'm not going to name his name because tapes get out all over the world, but I know a friend that I've met, a missionary, who lives in the Middle East. He is so dedicated to reaching his people. God placed him in Lebanon. He was born there. He was raised there. He's been serving the Lord there, but he's serving in a number of places in the Middle East. And he has kids, and one of his sons wanted to become a doctor. She said, Dad, I'm going to go become a doctor and I'm going to go to school in California. So his father, before he left, gave him a typical Mideast charge. He said, Son, you have my blessing. You can go over, you can go to medical school, you can graduate, become a doctor. You have my blessing, but if you do not return to this land and serve the Lord in the land that God has called us to, then my curse rests upon you. Because God has called us here to reach these people. And you know it. God has given you that call. He says, don't worry, Dad. I'll be back. And so he's going to school. And when he graduates, he felt like God has brought him back to that land to minister as a medical missionary to those people. And his father gave him a blessing and a curse, much like the biblical characters would have done. And uh, Abraham is feeling that way about his son. The Lord God of heaven who took me, verse 7, from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and shall take a wife for my son from there. 
And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. The servant is unnamed, but as I said, his name is probably Eleazar. Uh, He's mentioned before in previous chapters. I told you to remember his name, Helper, because he is a type of the Holy Spirit. Abraham is a type of God the Father, who has an only begotten son, who is searching for a bride for his son. And he sends the unnamed servant, the Helper. As Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit, who is called the Helper, comes, he will lead you into all truth. The unnamed servant is sent out to find a bride for his son Isaac and to bring him back, bring her back to the land where he is. Isaac is a type of Jesus Christ, who after the sacrifice will be united with the Gentile bride. And it's actually very beautiful because in the New Testament, Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he will not speak of himself or testify of himself, but he will speak of things to come and bear witness of me, Jesus said. And notice throughout the entire chapter, chapter 24, this unnamed servant doesn't speak about himself, but the Father and the Son, and speaks about the Son and the Father, always bearing witness to them like the Holy Spirit would do. So it's very beautiful. Let's see how far we can get in the next eight minutes. Verse 10, The servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and he went to Mesopotamia, the city of Nahor. And he made his camel kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time the time when the women go out to draw water. What a great scene this is. And he said, listen to his prayer, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink, and she says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And it happened before he had finished speaking that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Don't you love it when your prayers are answered before you can even say amen? Those are awesome kind of experiences. He's praying and here she is. He's probably going, wow, I wonder. And it happened before he finished speaking. Okay, we already read that. Verse 16. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold. A virgin. No man had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. Now camels drink over 20 gallons of water at a lap, at a session. Ten camels... You can imagine how much work she would have to do. Quite a test he was making for this woman. He didn't want a valley girl. I'm speaking of the San Fernando Valley. I'm not speaking locally here. You know, I've got to remember where I am. He was, he was looking for somebody that was hard working. He wasn't looking for like, oh, gag me. I'm not going to feed camels. He was looking for somebody who was beautiful and who was industrious. So he gives this test. Lord, now make sure that this woman is very hospitable. And when I say, can I have a drink? She says, tell you what, I'll not only give you a drink, but 
all your camels, your 10 camels, could take about 200 gallons of water. Now, the buckets in those wells are from two to five gallons. That's hours of work, quite a commitment. So it was quite a test. And here's this gorgeous woman. This is a virgin that no one had known. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. And so she said, Drink, my Lord. And she hastened and let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. He thought, Yes. And she hastened and emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all his camels. And the man, wondering at her, remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. So it was when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a golden nose ring weighing a half a shekel, two bracelets for her wrist weighing ten shekels of gold, and said, Whose daughter are you? Tell me, please. Is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? And she said, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, Melchah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, We have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. The man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master as for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So the young women ran and told those of her mother's house these things. I want to, in the last couple minutes, refer you back to verse 16. This woman was gorgeous. And no doubt he noticed her. And he wanted the best for Isaac. He wanted a good-looking gal. I mean, he was shopping around for you know, a real knockout. Let's be real. He was a guy. Isaac was a guy. He wanted somebody that would knock Isaac's socks off. He thought, look at her. She's gorgeous. But it says in verse 16 also that she was a virgin. She did not know a man. This woman was committed to the principle of chastity. She was a virgin. And the Bible uses a very interesting word to describe her. She had not known a man. Now, the word know can mean many things. We say, I know you. But in the Bible, it is used in the context of marriage to refer to only sexual intercourse because sex in the Bible is never divorced from intimate relationship. The whole idea of casual sex doesn't even fit in the realm of biblical thinking because sex is part of an eternal commitment between two people who will know each other more and more, the intimate, most intimate form of fellowship. That's why to divorce sex from commitment is an insult to a human being. She was a virgin, and she didn't know a man. Now, I know that some people laugh at the whole idea of saving themselves. This day and age, oh, come on, everybody does it. But the people who laugh at the idea of saving yourself and being chased for your future husband or wife will later regret that they did not. I have sat across the counseling desks from many a people who because they compromised with other people or even with their present husband or wife they have feelings of guilt, remorse and mistrust in that person. Hey, if he did it with me, he might do it with somebody else. He compromised once. Who knows if he might not do it again. They've regretted the fact that they didn't save themselves. Every now and then I've had the privilege of performing a wedding 
for a couple who decided they wouldn't even kiss each other until their wedding day. When I announced that at the wedding, it's like this unbelievable gasp goes up. <gasps> you know, God just performed. How? That's impossible. You see, we are so away from this whole idea of chastity that when you get that kind of a commitment, it's like supernatural. But we have couples in this church who said, now that we're, gonna, we're a spouse to be married, we're not going to touch each other or give us put ourselves in a temptable position. We won't even kiss each other until our wedding. You know what? When I finally say, you can kiss your bride, it's an awesome kiss. I've been waiting a long time, man. And it's a long, passionate kiss. They've been storing up for that one. And they have every right. And it's wonderful. Sex before marriage can ruin a relationship. It can devastate it. Samson was weak in this area, remember? There was Delilah. Delilah, another good-looking gal. Knew how to manipulate this strong ox of a man by using her sexual prowess. And so she came on to him. She said, Samson, you big husky dude. <laughs> Tell me the secret of your strength. Oh, Delilah. And he started toying with it until he finally gave it away. Cost him his eyesight and his life, his integrity, his ministry, his witness. Weak. So strong physically. A wimp morally. A wimp. And his life was devastated. I think I should conclude with what one author described a typical story. When I read it, I thought, yep, I've seen this played over and over again. He said, when I first met Linda, I, know, I knew that she would be a real asset to our youth group. She was enthusiastic, fun-loving, and when it came to talking seriously about our faith in Christ, she could settle down and really dig into the scriptures. What a joy to be around. Now, two and a half years later, Linda sat in my office and sobbed uncontrollably, her story went something like this. Although she dated in high school, she'd never really been serious with anyone until Tony came along. Tony was in leadership corps at the church. He was popular at school, active in student government, and a real gentleman. Let me go on. At first, most of their dates were double dates or church functions. Good move, by the way. Very quickly, they both fell head over heels for each other. For Linda, life began to revolve around Tony and the time they spent together. A few weeks passed into a few months, and the perfect couple began to spend more and more time together. After youth group, instead of going to the hamburger stand with the rest of the gang, they would make an excuse and end up spending an hour or so kissing. They both had high moral standards, but they were so much in love that over the next few months, they found themselves slipping. In Linda's words, from light kissing to heavy kissing to light petting to very heavy petting, slowly but surely their dates had changed from doing fun and active things to situations in which they could be close, quote-unquote. Almost every date was filled with very heavy petting. Sometimes Tony and Linda would talk about their relationship. Although they, though they were both in high school and wanted to go to college, marriage was a possibility. Now, however, both Linda and Tony felt guilty about their physical relationship. They tried to talk about it, but it was a difficult subject to discuss. 
Although they both tried to stop being so physical, it was getting harder and harder to stop. They found themselves communicating less and less verbally and more and more sexually. The Linda who sat in my office was a serious young woman struggling with guilt and confusion. It was difficult for her to share her experiences. She and Tony had been, in Linda's words, going all the way for about two months. The night before, though, the night before, Tony had opened up to her and shared his true inner feelings. He loved her, but he felt tremendous guilt about their physical relationship. School was going badly, and he wanted to be more involved with church. Although he loved Linda, he felt the best thing to do was to break up. Linda was crushed, and she knew that what most of what Tony was saying was true. She came to my office looking for answers. I met a lot of people like that, and it's a heart, heartache. It's a tragedy. Gals, let me just give you some rubber-meet-the-road practical advice. You meet a real gentleman who comes on to you and says, Oh, if you love me, you'll do it. If you love me, if you love me, really, you'll go all the way. Smack him. <laughs> Might offend some of you. I don't care. If he really loves you, he'll wait. Love is patient, the Bible says. If he loves you, he'll respect your integrity, he'll respect your body, respect your life, and he'll say, not until we're married. If he says, I love you, say, you lie. Because he's a liar. Love is patient. And if he loves you, he will demonstrate that love to you by saying, I love you more than my own physical needs and desires at this point. We'll continue this wonderful dating story Next time we get into it, and it's a beautiful story indeed, how Isaac is meditating in the field as his wife comes to meet him, and we're going to see a beautiful relationship and an example of Rebecca being a type of the church, the bride of Christ. Heavenly Father, how wonderful to know that you are interested in indeed every aspect of our lives. And you have the one that is most suitable for us, the one that will complement us, bring us to complete fulfillment, that man or that woman that you have chosen, who by your spirit would be a gift to us whereby we can grow. Lord, until that time, I pray that we and our love would be patient, our love for you. Instead of trying to beat the bush, we would be on our knees even now praying for that future man or woman. And Lord, I pray those of us who are married would cherish our husbands and our wives. Go home and firm up the commitment of love between each of us. Lord, we pray for our marriages, the marriages in this church. Some this evening, even in this room, are on shaky, tenuous ground. And Father, we pray that you'd rescue, that there would be a core commitment that would take place a decision to work through and past the point of pain, to expose deep feelings, to be vulnerable, forgiving, and very wide in our mercy. Lord, I pray that we would allow you to be Lord in our lives. And if some have held on tightly and have not surrendered the reins of their life to Jesus, that they would just be convinced of your covenant love for them. Throw in the towel, quit the fight, and grab a hold 
of the lifeline, which is Christ. Tonight would be a night of change. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Jesus' name.